I was really quite hostile to the idea of having children and having children. Um, that uh, and I really thought that uh, that uh, I would be much. I'd have a much better and more productive and more happier and more fruitful life if I did not have children. Um, and I was quite wrong. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to the Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy, and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning, and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Julian Legrand is one of the great social policy thinkers of our age. Uh, he has advised everyone from Tony Blair to the President of the European Commission, the World Bank, the World Health Organization, the OECD uh, and the BBC. He's a fellow of the British Academy, uh, among the Guardian and Prospect's top British public intellectuals, and one of the Evening Standard's most influential people in London. Uh, an economist by training, he was awarded a knighthood in 2015, uh, and as the author, co-author or editor of over 20 books and more than 100 refereed journal articles and book chapters. Uh, when I reviewed one of his books in 2004, I described it as one of the most appetising books on welfare to come out in recent years. A neat blend of political philosophy and economic theory, seasoned with a dash of empirical evidence and accompanied with a healthy serving of policy proposals. Rereading that description now, I, I realise that, in fact, it, it could well be applied to uh, uh, any of the two dozen or so of, uh, of Julian's books. Uh, it's a delight to have him on the Good Life podcast today. Well, thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. So, uh, Julian, let's start with your, your initial training. Uh, you did your uh, bachelor's degree in economics at the University of Sussex, and then you, uh, you crossed the pond to the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, what prompted that? Yes. They had a very, um, uh, they had a very generous Anglo-American um, exchange scheme, um, which, uh, uh, which I was lucky enough to be awarded one of the scholarships at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and I had an, uh, really an amazing four years of, um, of doing a PhD in the States, just at a time when uh, uh, America was going through various convulsions. It was the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, and um, it, was, it was a really rather wonderful experience. Uh, where, had you always been interested in issues of uh, disadvantage? Yes, I think actually it was that trip to the States that made me um, particularly concerned about the uh, the plights of the disadvantaged. I was really quite shocked at the signs of, of poverty and inequality that one saw in the United States. Um, uh, of course, I mean, there, there are many great things about America, and I'm a great fan of the United States in many ways, but there's no doubt that the uh, the degree of inequality and the the absence of, of just decent services, of decent health care, particularly for the disadvantaged, uh, decent education for the disadvantaged and so on, was very striking. And I think it was one of the real uh, strongest influences on my subsequent career was, uh, was that experience. 
Yeah, my parents uh, were both in, in the US in the late 1960s, and they, they just describe the shock of 1968, uh, partly with the Martin Luther King uh, uh, assassination, but particularly, they said, when Bobby Kennedy was shot. That just had a huge impact on uh, galvanising their passion for, for making a difference for the most disadvantaged. I, I, absolutely, and precisely those two events. I do remember, but I remember... One always remembers where one was when uh, when Kennedy was shot, but uh, John F. Kennedy, that mm. is. Uh, but um, I, I, I even more profoundly remember the, the moment that Martin Luther King and indeed Robert Kennedy um, were were shot, and um, uh, and again, exactly as your as your parents would uh, uh, would say, an enormous impact. I mean, ob obviously on America itself, but but just on me personally. Um, uh, and just as, as, a, as an illustration of the enormous problems that, uh, that the United States faced in terms of inequality and disadvantage. And when you talk about uh, being struck by that disadvantage, did you grow up in a, in a fairly middle-class household in Britain? Oh, I did, yeah. I've had a very privileged upbringing. Um, I was um, brought up in... <coughs> my, my father taught at one of the um, great English public schools, that's the private schools in sensible jargon, um, <laughs> Charterhouse, and then, um, uh, and then and he sent me to his old school, um, which was Eton. Um, and, and so I, I really grew up <laughs> surrounded by privilege. I mean, it wasn't necessarily accompanied by enormous wealth, I may say. Um, the teachers don't get paid very much. But, um, but yes, uh, I had a very advantaged uh, childhood, and I think that, again, makes me particularly sensitive to, uh, to people who have not had that, uh, that, that luck and that advantage. Uh, do, do you think it's important for people studying poverty to spend a lot of time around the poor? I do think it is, um, partly because it is so easy to, uh, uh, if you are not, if you do not see the, the difficulties and the constraints and the problems that people face when they're, they're in um, a disadvantaged situation, when they're in poverty or whatever, um, you're often tempted to think, oh, well, it's their own fault, or uh, you're tempted to blame the poor for their own plight, so to speak. Uh, and it's not until you actually see the kind of things they experience, I mean, maybe even experience them yourself if, if you ever do have a period of poverty, um, it's not until you, you actually see that um, that you really get a feel and you, real, re, you realise that the poor can... Not, I mean, of course, there are some people who are, who are feckless and irresponsible and there are some people who are poor because out of their own choices that they've made, but... Uh, but very few, in my experience. Um, most people are there because of factors entirely beyond their control. Uh, and that's the thing that um, we have to, um, the rest of us, have to try and do something about. How do you manage to, uh, to maintain those connections? I mean, the, the, the work at LSE would be all-consuming if you allowed it to be. How do you, how do you manage to build yes. in spending time at the coalface? 
Well, it is true. Um, uh, I mean, probably not not as much as I should, especially given what I've just said. Um, I mean, I still I still lead a, a privileged life. I work at an elite institution. Uh, I live in a, in an, a very pleasant part of the uh, part of the world. Um, I have to say, um, the uh, if you live and work in London, you you do confirm. I mean, London is not London is not a a model of equality. Quite. You, might expect. Um, you do encounter um, the problems of the poor. I've done quite a lot of research. I did quite some research on social, what they call social exclusion, but basically on on deprived and, and actually went round and visited and talked to um, uh, a numbers of people who were in. Um, who who are in, in in dire straits? I suppose too. The other the other thing I, I've always been very keen on doing uh, was um, sending my children to the local school, the local uh, state school, the local government funded school. Not sending them off to a privileged enclave like Eton or whatever. Um, it hasn't done them any harm. They've done very well. One one went to Oxford. One went to Sussex. They've they've done fine as uh, um and i hope it's also given them a grounding in um uh in the real world so to speak uh and uh, and also of course and partly me too because i'm i was involved obviously I'm, i was chair of the parent teacher association and so on so um again trying to get outside the the privileged bubble you're, uh, you came back uh, initially to, uh, to the University of Sussex and then uh, uh, within six years or so had taken up a, a position at the, the London School of Econ Economics. Uh, Indeed. And it seems to me that if I look at your CV, uh, you begin looking something like a traditional economist, but quite quickly move into interdisciplinary work, a uh, lot of publications in the, in the health field, uh, and also to a to much heavier engagement with policy. Did you always know that was the direction you wanted to go, or did that uh, did that come slowly? I think it partly de it developed. I think um, it was partly partly through being in America um, and, and having the actions of government. Of course, the other thing which I didn't mention before, the other great uh, big thing was the um, Vietnam War, which uh, mm. of course was a a big, enormous issue at the time. Um, so I became very interested in government and also a perception that governments get things wrong at times. Um, that may not come as a surprise to many people. Um, but um, uh, I'm, a great, I'm a great believer in government and I believe uh, governments often get things right. But I, I think I hadn't quite realised the extent to which the major, the major problems of policy... Uh, can affect people's lives so dramatically and so drastically, uh, and uh, it was how important it was to get to get policy right uh, in order to make people's lives be uh, better, more secure, more contented, and so on. So yes, I think it was it was partly the experience in America that did it. I have to say it's also probably my education at um, the University of Sussex. Uh, University of Sussex, when I first went there, it had just opened, it was a brand new university, just opened, um, 
And it was uh, it was an experimental. It wasn't trying to teach people the old disciplines of economics or sociology or whatever. It was trying to put it all together in in a sort of more uh, a more uh, broader interdisciplinary uh, education. So I discovered studied quite a lot of philosophy, quite a bit of sociology, even some science as well. Um, so uh, it was uh, actually, a, in way, many ways, a, a very good education for what turned out to be my subsequent career. So, I mean, there's, there's big risks, I guess, of interdisciplinary work, uh, the most obvious being that you will never publish in, uh, in, in the best journals and therefore miss out on tenure. How do you advise young academics who are thinking about uh, uh, whether they want to stray from their, their disciplinary home? Yes, well, I'm afraid um, almost exactly what you just said, what you have to advise them to do and what I do advise them to do, to some extent is what I did. Stay within your discipline for the first 10 years um, and get, get, your, so get your articles published in the, in the, in the best journals. Um, uh, don't, don't, don't try and stray too far from the disciplinary mainstream. Once you've got your tenure, <laughs> um, once, you, once you've established your reputation... Uh, uh, and it, it isn't just a question of getting tenure. I, I think that is a, a point about you've got, got to establish yourself as a serious player right. in your discipline. Uh, and then, um, then you, you're, you have the opportunity to spread your wings a bit uh, into other disciplines and into, pol into policy work. And uh, likewise, uh, is, is that how you think about books, that, uh, that an economist needs to uh, establish their credentials through articles before they, uh, they sort of have licence to, uh, to start uh, the frivolities of book writing? I think that's probably, unfortunately, I think that's probably true in the, in the economics world. Um, <clears throat> uh, I was lucky enough to get a couple of articles published um, in top journals um, fairly early on in my career. Uh, I then started writing books, and there's no, I mean, um, there's no doubt to some extent that did uh, damage my career, within, at least within economics, um, that um, people did not rate the writing of books um, as a legitimate activity, and in some sense you were, you were particularly books that were non-technical, and we're not. Um, uh, and we're trying to reach a, a wider audience. Uh, and um, uh, I was um, uh, denied promotion. I remember um, on precisely those grounds that um, oh, you've been spending your time writing books, and you haven't done some more of these uh, uh, these high quality, high technical uh, articles. Yes, I often say to non-economists that uh, the value of books in our discipline has been declining roughly since Adam Smith wrote The Wealth of Nations. Yes, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I quite agree. There was Keynes, of course. Um, um, and Samuelson, but uh, they're the exceptions. His general theory. But um, I remember, actually, I was given the... Uh, when, I, when I first arrived at the University of Sussex um, and went into my first economics tutorial, um, I was given the general theory to read... Uh, and uh, I went home, and after about three hours at it, I, I threw it in the fire and went off to see if I could join sociology. <laughs> luckily, the so luckily, the sociologists couldn't, they, they were full up, so they couldn't take me, so I had to stick with economics <laughs> and write an essay on bloody general theory. So, <laughs> anyway. But one of the other things, Julian, uh, about your career is that you're so damn prolific. 
Uh, and you wrote a fascinating piece uh, a decade ago for PhD students in which you talked about the risk of what you called misplaced perfectionism uh, uh, that, uh, that holds people back from, uh, from pressing the submit button on an, on an article or, uh, or, or another piece of work. Um, can, you, can you say a little bit about, about the, the role of misplaced perfectionism and how you think about, yes. think about when something's well, done? It, it, it's something I've observed a lot in... Um, uh, my colleagues uh, and academic colleagues, um, but also much wider in life and certainly among my students, um, which is a, um, it's a very understandable desire to be, uh, to, to be uh, perfectionist, um, to make sure that, the, uh, uh, particularly when you're going to submit something to the judgment of the outside world, um, you want to make sure that it's as good as possible, just to, to, to deflect uh, any possible criticism and to disarm any critics uh, and to just put your best foot forward. And the trouble is that that, that means you get to the problem of what I call the, the last 10%. That, and I've observed it with several colleagues. Uh, they, they do 90% of the work on an article or on a book indeed. Um, and then they can't uh, quite do that last 10%. They say... Uh, oh, well, I must just read this book or I must just mm. find that, that set of data. Um, uh, I must just, uh, in statistical terms, I must just run the next regression. Um, uh, and uh, they can't quite bring themselves to, to actually sort of put, your, put the full stop uh, at, the end of the, at the end of the sentence, at the end of the paragraph, at the end of the book, uh, and um, send it off to the publisher or the journal. Um, I remember it was a piece of very good advice I remember I picked up somewhere. Some philosopher somewhere said, and um, I can never quite find the source, and if any of your listeners know it, they could tell me, uh, said, you never finish a work of philosophy, you only abandon it. <laughs> and, I, and, and I think that applies to a much greater, to the, the world in general. I don't, you, the, you can set yourself an enormous task and you'll never finish it. Uh, all you have to do is abandon it. Um, and, but it's very important that you do actually abandon it, not endlessly try to finish uh, and make a perfect, uh, a perfect object from your efforts. I think you said at the time it might have been an Iris Murdoch quote, but you weren't quite sure. Indeed, that's right. I think it might be an Iris Murdoch, but, um, but yes. So if, as I say, do do if if anyone if anyone finds finds out who it was, do let me know. Uh, does this change how you think about your books? Uh, they, that uh, that there's sort of uh, a sense a greater sense of modesty as to uh, as as to what's in uh, what's encapsulated in any of your books, and some sense when you look at them where you think, well, maybe that's ninety percent right and ten percent wrong, but it's now up to the world to work out what's the ninety and what's the ten. I do, exactly. Uh, I do think that. Um, actually, I can probably identify what the 90% right and the 10% wrong <laughs> is without the outside world, but I'm not going to tell them. <laughs> um, yes, and, and quite often, it's quite interesting, I'm quite often I'm tempted to, to, do, to rewrite it, to, mm. to do another edition or whatever. Um, and again, it was a piece of advice that a colleague once gave me when I asked if I, was, I would do... Um, um, a second edition, not of a textbook. I, I do, I do second and third editions of textbooks. That's different because new material comes up and you have to incorporate it and so on. 
but um, you, to to rewrite your thoughts on a on a basic monograph or indeed a basic article is almost invariably a mistake, uh, and you end up um, not not really advancing things any more than you did with your first piece. So don't rewrite. Yes, yes. Your um, Economics of Social Problems text, I think, is now in its fourth or its fifth edition uh, with Palgrave. But uh, yes. um, <coughs> I notice you're, it, it, most of the other books, uh, you seem to just write a fresh book rather than write the same book afresh. Yes, that's what I try and do, very much so. Um, and do you also think of uh, a lot of your writing now as being uh, a little bit risky in the sense that you're trying to throw out ideas that may or may not work, but that you see your role as being to broaden broaden people's policy thinking? Uh, I mean, you are one of the sort of, one of the edgier policy thinkers, uh, I guess, out there in the world of social policy. Some of your ideas uh, seem, seem much more radical than the, the typical social policy text that I read. Uh, well, thank you for that. I, I regard that as a major compliment. Um, I, I think, yes, exactly. I, um, I do think that... Um, uh, that I, I suppose, stepping back one bit, um, I, I do think it's very important that academics or, um, indeed, policy commentators generally say what they would do um, and offer, sort of, offer serious... Um, uh, but interesting policy solutions to particular problems. I, I must say, one of the things I found working in government, um, when I was working at 10 Downing Street, um, I would wake up in the morning and I would um, hear one of my academic colleagues from the LSE or elsewhere um, on, the, on the radio programme uh, going through the list of all the problems with a particular policy that I had been involved with or had crafted or had worked on. Um, and, um, and, of course, it's always easy to do that. It's terribly easy to find the problems. Every, no policy is perfect. Uh, no idea um, uh, has, has no problems with it. So it's easy, in some sense, to list the problems. And what the interviewer would never do at the end of the programme, at the end of this list of catalogue of, of disastrous mistakes that the government was clearly making... Um, that would never say, well, what would you do? Mm. What would you do, Professor? Uh, and um, in fact, I was, I was going to actually write a book called So What Would You Do? <laughs> and I may still write it. <clears throat> uh, so I do think it's terribly important that you, you actually, you don't actually act simply as a critic, um, that you do actually put forward ideas of your own, um, which could be radical or not, um, but you do put forward ideas of your own that try and address the very problems to which you've drawn attention to uh, in any critique that you might have made. Yes, and an economist's ability to, or greater ability to criticise than to create, I think, uh, does explain in part why economics is in this terrible muddle with the refereeing process now being so time-consuming and, uh, and so slow. Um, by contrast, I mean, you're putting out uh, uh, ideas left, right, left, right and centre, this notion of uh, 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 an option of paying an extra 1% of income tax uh, to go into a poverty or inequality reduction fund, uh, the notion of a demigrant, of each young person being given a, uh, a lick of cash to, uh, uh, yes. spend, to, to, to spend later when they turn 18. Uh, you know, these are, these are big and, and, and serious ideas, uh, as is your engagement with Nudge. Um, uh, how do you feel about the fact that uh, a lot of what you put out 
doesn't get taken up. Uh, does that trouble you, or do you just expect that when you're um, putting out fairly radical and unexpected ideas that many of them will, at least in the short term, fall on deaf ears? Well, uh, I, I suppose, I hope, yes, I, your bit about the, in the short term is interesting. I mean, I think that um, uh, some of these ideas, I hope, um, will come to fruition in the longer term. Um, um, the, uh, of course, some, some of the ideas have been taken up and have then disappeared, which is particularly upsetting. One of the examples, you talked about this universal capital grant idea that I had, that, that every... Um, uh, that every child um, on reaching the age of 18 should um, receive a sort of capital grant um, that they could spend how they liked, but they spent on higher education, they spent on starting a business, on buying a house, um, or whatever. And now the government did, the British government did take up that idea, um, uh, a slightly different form. Uh, they had this, I think, called the Child Trust Fund, which every baby born in the United Kingdom, the government opened a savings account for and put a bit of money in, not much, £250, uh, £500 for the less well-off. Um, and then parents could save into that account um, and grandparents could save into that account. The, nobody could touch it um, except the child, him or herself, um, when, she reached, uh, when he or she reached 18. Um, and so the, with the magical compound interest, that, that would mean that the, the, money, the money could be quite sizable by that time. Um, and this is a really successful policy. The, the parents loved it. The, the poor, uh, the, the, the less well-off loved it. Um, I remember talking to some parents, some really sort of, uh, poor families, and they said, we could never save in this way. We could never save for our children in this way. It's just wonderful. This opportunity is there. And then uh, a new government came in and, um, and abolished the scheme. And I, I sobbed into my beer. <laughs> I, really, I really feel an act of policy vandalism. Get rid of that. So some of the idea, and the idea, uh, I'm sorry, I'm rabbiting on. But, no, no, um, the, the other, uh, one of the ideas I had, which was a so-called um, pupil premium idea, that was taken up, and uh, this was an idea by which that when you um, uh, fund schools to take on, um, uh, fund schools for the, for the children that they've got, um, that if they take on children from particularly poor areas, um, they get a larger amount of money associated with that child to be spent, hopefully, on, um, uh, on uh, special measures for, for that child. Well, that idea has been taken up and, indeed, is now um, a substantial part of the, of the UK system for funding um, schools. So, that, so I was very pleased about that. So you win some and you lose some. Indeed. Uh, and uh, in terms of your direct engagement with, uh, with policy, I guess the, uh, uh, the, the largest... Um, uh, time you've spent is that uh, that secondment from 2003 to 2005 to uh, Number 10 Downing Street. Um, what was it like to work with Tony Blair? Um, well, it was it was the most extraordinary experience of my life, <laughs> um, as as you can well imagine. Um, uh, to work Blair himself um, is a decent uh, is a decent man. In fact, it was one of the things I. I um, uh, 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 that I learnt most about working in government was, uh, and this isn't trying to uh, flatter you, uh, Andrew, as well as Tony Blair, but that politicians are 
decent, intelligent uh, people um, who, who are good to work with. I mean, you, you, the, the, the conventional wisdom um, out there of politicians is often that they are sort of venal or corrupt in various ways and always out of self-interest. I did not find that at all. I found that the... Um, starting with Tony Blair, but also um, his ministers um, and indeed the top civil servants. These these were people who were trying to do a very difficult job. Government, as I need not tell you, government is difficult. <laughs> um, mm. They're trying to do an immensely difficult job, trying to reconcile um, thousands of different interests, um, trying to reconcile thousands of different people, each, with, each who believe passionately in their cause, trying to shape it and fashion it into a, um, um, a, a policy that, that would make as many people as possible uh, better off in, in a variety of ways. And, um, and the, that was very much my experience of working with Tony um, and indeed, as I say, with, with his ministers, that uh, I was deeply impressed with their, um, their, their ability uh, and their, their concern and their genuine commitment to the cause they were trying to promote. What advice would you give to a professor making the transition into being a, a policy advisor on, on a secondment like that? Um, don't expect you can do too much. Um, I, I was always surprised um, that um, how much of your time you spend firefighting. Um, the pressure of... Um, the pressure of, of uh, uh, media, the 24-hour media, the 24-hour world. I would, I would wake up in the morning... Um, I would switch on the radio program, um, and I'd I, and I'd hear that some dreadful problem had arisen in some uh, hospital somewhere. We had a particular problem with uh, with these hospital acquired these superbugs that resisted infection, that, that resisted uh, antibiotics, and I would hear that um, uh, that a particular hospital had got infected with it. Uh, and I'd know that my whole day was going to be shot. I'd have to work out what the, should the Prime Minister say something about it? Uh, if so, what should he say? What should be done elsewhere in the system about it? And that long strategy paper, this great new idea I got, um, was, was, would have to be put on the back shelf uh, until, uh, until the next day. And then, of course, the next day came and there'd be another crisis in another hospital and still the paper didn't get written. So... You, you spend an awful lot of your time firefighting, <laughs> not enough time um, developing your uh, greater thoughts for, the, uh, for uh, improving the world. You're also even more in the public eye in that role, perhaps, than, uh, than in your previous one, and you were criticised when you took up the post. Uh, I think uh, one critic said you, were, you identified more with profit than with public service uh, due to your focus on choice markets for health and edu education. Uh, did that sting? Yes. Um, well, that, that has been a, a standard problem I, um, I've had. Um, that, uh, again, again, it was my feeling that, um, uh, in some sense, the private sector was held up to too, uh, to too high a standard, that... Um, Actually, again, I mean, the people who work, let's say in the big pharmaceutical companies, um, um, which are a particular target for, uh, often for um, uh, criticism, um, for being apparently um, uh, corrupt and evil in various ways. And again, I, did, I just did not find that. I, I mean, 
of course they engage in um, in malfeasance of various kinds. Of course they do dreadful things. And I must say the 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 pay, particularly of chief executives in the private sector, um, is a particularly appalling <laughs> um, appalling phenomenon uh, at the moment. But but I didn't again. I did not. I mean, I didn't find that um, the proportion of evil people um, was significantly different for there than the proportion of evil people in the world at large. Um, and on the contrary, that there were a lot of very decent people who were trying to do a decent job and often doing it rather more effectively than, than occurred in the, in the public sector. So um, it was one of the reasons why I was quite supportive of the idea of, um, of um, using private sector operators. Um, I think I'm more concerned, though, with the idea of competition. Um, and that needn't necessarily mean um, by private sector. You could have public sector organisations or non-profit organisations competing with one another. It seems to me that monopoly, monopoly is a bad thing um, in, in almost any context, whether it's within the public sector, within the private sector, or within uh, the non-profit sector. Uh, it's always a good idea to have some pressure from outside. And actually, if I could again develop that a bit, um, the one of the things I learned about working in government or about the public policy in general was that, on the whole, poorly performing institutions, whether you're talking public sector institutions, but you're talking about hospitals or schools or um, old people's homes or uh, housing associations or whatever. On the whole, they're not going to reform on their own. Um, it's no. We were told time and time and time again. Oh well, the problem with a polyformic hospital hasn't got enough money. And we must. You must. You must give us more money. The the problem is, if you just give us the money, and trust us, and uh, we will um, uh, we will be able to deal with it. Um, actually, we did give them a lot of money in many occasions, um, and. Things didn't change. They didn't reform. You needed some form of pressure from outside. Um, and that could come from a variety of sources. It come directly from government, but you, you might set targets. We'd, we set a lot of targets. Um, um, and, uh, and actually sort of try and direct the people concerned. You try and change the personnel in the, in the hospitals. You, um, or it could come from competitive pressure. Um, of the kind that uh, competition from other organisations, so that you allowed um, patients to choose their hospital, you allowed parents to choose their school, not not send them compulsorily to the local school or whatever. Um, or you could rely on a regulator, some sort of independent regulator. And on balance, I found that the mo I thought the most effective of those was probably competitive pressure. So you've uh, and that's the. Yep. You you very uh, very dexterously given me a, a, a fascinating answer on the substance of the critiques, but I'm curious too as to on a personal level how those critiques have affected you, um, feeling that you were being attacked uh, not just in the traditional academic fashion, but uh, uh, by people saying that you shouldn't be in number ten at all. Well, it was upsetting. Um, uh, there's no doubt um, uh, that. Um uh, that one did feel um, 
uh, under attack. What, 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 what I did try to make sure was that in, that in my private life, I could not be um, accused of hypocrisy or whatever. I did not have shares in any of these companies. My children went to... They did go to the local... They went to the local schools. Um, my I did not have private health insurance. Um, and so I did try very much to... Um, to uh, practice what I preached as a... You know, I, I'm, I'm not... None of this is trying to further my own self-interest. It's what I genuinely believe will be better off for the society uh, as a whole. Uh, and uh, but nonetheless, I still got attacked with people suspecting my motives all the time, yeah. and um, saying you're you're just out to you're you're in you're in bed with all these private sector developers, um, and um, uh, uh, well, I mean, you just have to you just have to roll with it. I mean, as indeed you you you've probably had not dissimilar experiences in your time. Well, indeed, and uh, I remember a, uh, one of my former Harvard professors talking about the transition back from working in the White House to uh, working at Harvard as being from going to making 20 important decisions a day to making one important decision a month. Um, how did you find the transition back uh, from the world of power into the world of ideas? Oh, that was tough, um, I must say. Um, I... Um, I would cycle past Number Ten Downing Street and know lots of exciting things were going on there, and then I would cycle to the back to the LSE, and uh, I'd have, there I'd find the same old problems, the same old concerns, <laughs> not, not as, um, the same old people, <laughs> all fussing about the same old problems, which seemed unbelievably trivial compared to the things one had been de had been dealing with. Um, I think you just have to get used to it, and of course. Um, it does have the advantage that you can, you you are you are not subject to the day by day pressures of being in government. Mm. That, as I say, can deflect you from thinking about the longer term. So the great advantage of being back in academia um, is that you can um, develop um, uh, a train of thought, an idea, and actually give it some um, some real intellectual basis, which is just so much more difficult to do. Um, when you're working in government and dealing with the day-by-day -day pressures. And your productivity seems to uh, continue uh, uh, unslowed. Uh, you're 72 years old now, still, uh, still, still churning out uh, ideas. Uh, how, do you, how do you work and do you have advice for others who want to be as productive as you? Do you have a daily word target? Do you get up at 2.30 in the morning and uh, dive, on the, dive on the computer with 16 cups of coffee? What, what, what's the Julian Legrand production function? <laughs> Um, the early stages in my career, yes, I did. I used to get up at five o'clock in the morning to write my books. It was the only way I could do it, particularly when I was head of department or at the university or whatever. And you had so many, the, the days were taken up with so many administrative concerns. So, I, yes, I would, I would get up at five o'clock in the morning. I must say, I don't, think, I don't actually think it's a very good way to work. The best way to work, I find, is, um, to, if, let's say you're trying to write a book, is to try and say, um, write an hour a day, just spend an hour a day on it. Be firm about that. I mean, it could be a word target if you liked, but actually I think time is often better. Just spend an hour before you open your emails. At 9 o'clock, don't, don't get up at 5 o'clock. Get up at 9 o'clock, well, rather, get, get to work at 9 o'clock. Open your computer, do an hour's work on the book. Then open your emails. Then um, uh, go to meetings or whatever. Um, 
But if you just keep that hour a day, because you know, it, it means you think about it during the rest of the day, what, what, what you were doing. Um, and it also means you don't have to, in a sense, reboot every time you, uh, you, you, you get back to things. Because by doing an hour a day, you're, you're keeping the ideas regularly at your, the front of your mind. What I find doesn't tend to work is to um, offer, is to say, is to great, carve out great blocks of time. Say, you know, oh, I'll, 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 I'll take four weeks off and write the book, or I'll take um, even two months off, if that were possible, and write the book. That, I find, tends not to work. It's much better to do the, a little bit every day than a lot, in, or try and do a lot, um, in, a, in a great chunk of time. That's very interesting. Uh, let me uh, finish up with some, uh, some, uh, a handful of final questions. Uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Um... <clears throat> I think it would be to uh, some of the things I've been saying already. Um, um, don't finish your philosophy, your work of philosophy. <laughs> don't don't uh, just just abandon it. Um, and uh, I suppose it's a related point in a way, um, which is um, uh, close. Be prepared to close off your options. Most people are reasonably good at a range of things. Um, and that can be quite difficult in to try and decide whether to um, uh, whether to have a, a, a range of things uh, when, when when you've got a whole range of things that you could do, um, and it's quite difficult to close off your options. And you're often tempted to sort of keep keep a keep a number of balls in the air and so on. I think it's probably a good idea actually if you can try and focus more, particularly at the early stages in your life and career. Um, and the second piece of advice I would give, which my teenage uh, self would have been very resistant to, would be um, have children. Do you um, feel you left I was that very hostile life? to the idea of having children. Um, and it was um, uh, my wife, uh, basically, who taught me that, that children can be fun, uh, that they're not just simply a burden. Um, the, when you do your cost-benefit analysis, that there are benefits that they're, they're not all costs, which most people seem to seem to tell you before you have children. <laughs> it's, it's all cost. They don't tell you what the benefits are, uh, and that if I had to sort of label the greatest experience of my life, it's it's, it's undoubtedly having children. Uh, and my my teenage self ought to know that. <laughs> it, it is. It's really interesting from a behavioural economic standpoint, isn't it? Because. Uh, you look at the happiness of parents and it seems significantly lower than non-parents, but you look at the kind of deep reflective experience of, of a, a whole and full life and uh, very few parents would look back and say, well, my greatest regret is, uh, is having those munchkins. Yes. <laughs> um, well, you, what you don't realise, of course, is that the children develop personalities and um, <coughs> and you like them. I mean, it isn't just a question of, of, of love. Of course, love is there at a fundamental level. But, I mean, they're actually... I, I enjoy talking to my children. Um, uh, I enjoy being with my children. Mm. And um, uh, they're, they're nice people. <laughs> and, uh, and, and people who are very close to you and, and you, can, um, uh, you can have sort of experiences with them that, that are just simply you cannot have with anybody else in the world. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? 
I suppose that that is probably the cheapest, the chief, uh, the, the, the chief one. That um, I, I, I was really quite hostile to the idea of children and having children. Um, that uh, and I really thought that uh, that uh, I would be much, I'd have a much better and more productive and more happier and more fruitful life if I did not have children. Um, and I was quite wrong, and I certainly don't believe it now. That, that is fascinating, given uh, the uh, the preponderance of work that you've done on uh, on issues around child well-being that uh, that, that you, <laughs> you 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 had this early attitude yes yes that, that that's that, that's yes that's an interesting point i hadn't thought of that but you're right most of that work has come about since i've had children though right. i think i think <laughs> when are you most happy I think, I mean, again, I come back to the children theme. Yeah. I think at the moment um, it is actually playing with the grandchildren. <laughs> um, I'm, we have four grandchildren, and, um, uh, and I, I think it's the time when, um, when I'm, um, I'm most absorbed in what I'm doing. Um, I don't know if I think of myself as happy at that point. Of course, the moment you start thinking about whether you're happy... Uh, in a particular situation, you're not happy. <laughs> um, um, but um, I think the moment which uh, the moment that most absorbs me, and when I'm probably uh, my happiest and most content, is um, is is that is when playing with the grandchildren. Actually, uh, uh, let me add a little bit too. Um, I think happiness is different from contentment, um, and probably the time when I'm most content is when I'm sitting in a hot bath with a glass of red wine and a good book. <laughs> uh, what's the most important thing you do uh, to stay mentally and physically healthy? Uh, I think probably uh, cycling. Um, I bicycle to work in London and I bicycle around London uh, quite a lot. Um, uh, I'm not. I'm not a. I'm not a. I'm not a. A professional cyclist or a, a, a lycra-clad cyclist. I just I cycle along in my suit um, uh, or whatever. Um, but it certainly keeps you. Um, it, it, it is good for you physically. Uh, uh, there's no doubt. I can I can feel much better from doing this. But um, it's also quite good for you mentally, particularly cycling in London traffic. You do want to. You have to keep very mentally alert. Uh, but you uh, you still find that uh, e even despite the risks of traffic, it's uh, it's good for your mental well-being. <laughs> yes, uh, well, it's certainly good for for keeping alert. I, whether, whether it's good for your mental well-being, I suppose, is another question. Certainly, the amount of times actually, um, uh, I was about to say the amount of time one's scared or whatever. Actually, it is very rare that one's scared on a bicycle. I don't know whether you you cycle, um, but. Um, the site um actually the traffic you're usually moving at about the same speed as the traffic so if things do begin to go wrong you've got plenty of time to do something about it usually um you just have to be careful not to go too close to parked cars to make sure that people don't open their doors in front of you um which is actually the the, the only two occasions when i've had a real problem has been when someone's opened uh, opened the car door in front of me so just keep keep parked cars keep parked cars at a distance um and uh, don't don't go too fast um, just travel up to the same speed as the traffic and uh, you'll be fine do you have any uh, guilty pleasures um 
I, I like... Uh, do I have any guilty... Guilty pleasures. Oh, yes. Um, I like um, junk food, or some junk food. Um, I like sliced white bread. Um, I'm not... I hate sourdough bread. Um, I, like, uh, I like a McDonald's Big Mac now and then. Um, I think those are probably the things I feel most... Uh, and I enjoy reading science fiction. I don't think... Um, I, don't, I don't feel terribly guilty about that, and science fiction these days is very much part of the, the mode. But uh, remember in my early days, I used to rather uh, be, be a, little, um, a little concerned about that. But um, uh, I was thinking before, it uh, just, uh, just occurred to me when you were talking about the uh, uh, combination of grandchildren and writing, the, uh, the image that popped into my mind was uh, uh, the way Roald Dahl used to do his writing, uh, go down to the garden, garden shed for a fixed period, period every day, and the only people who were allowed to interrupt him, I think, were the grandchildren. <laughs> right. Oh, what an interesting, interesting point. Yes, I, did, I hadn't heard that, but that's, uh, that's, uh, that, that would uh, pretty much sum up my philosophy of life at the moment, I think. It seems a, a pretty good way of uh, combining uh, uh, multiple pleasures in life. Uh, and finally, uh, <laughs> Julian, which person or which experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? I think probably I'm working in number 10. Um, uh, as I say, um, it's, it's where you confront the most... You confront the most difficult decisions in your life um, because you know that, these, that what you say or do has consequences and has consequences for, the, um, for people's lives um, in the real world um, and immediate consequences often too. Um, and so the moral, moral and ethical dilemma, the, the moral dilemmas, and the and the the other sort of dilemmas, the economic dilemmas, the, the dilemmas of not having enough resources to do what you want, having to make trade-offs, um, trade-offs between people, trade-offs between values. Um, I think that that is the. I, I would I would recommend that everybody works if they can in politics at some point, um, because that's where you you get your your moral compass and your economic and political compasses, so to speak, that get tested uh, to their to their limit. Well, what a brilliant spot to end. There's no way I could uh, could disagree with that uh, with any of my hats on. Julian um, Legrand, uh, thank you so much for uh, for jo joining the podcast today. Julian's uh, uh, most recent book is uh, Government Paternalism: Nanny State or Helpful Friend. Uh, really appreciate your insights today. Thank you very much. Well, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.